Let's take our Bible, shall we? Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. I'm going to preach a sermon that I've entitled, The Sabbath Rest for the People of God. It's kind of like part two uh, of what we began last week at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 4. So what I'm going to do, because really verse 7 is sort of the same thought that we left at last week. I'm just going to begin in Hebrews 4, verse 1. And you can get the the gist of the whole context as I read it. Follow with me. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word that they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had the good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. You've heard of the man Augustine. Augustine was born in 354 AD in North Africa in what's known as modern-day Algeria, the country of Algeria. This young man was a bondage in bondage to his sin for many, many, many years. One of the stories and one of the lessons that I learn in reading about the life of Augustine is that God loves to take big failures and rescue them by his sovereign grace. God did that with Augustine, he did that with me, and he did that with you, if you're a believer as well. But everybody here has heard of John Calvin. We've all heard of Martin Luther, but Augustine lived a thousand years before they did. And these teachers all acknowledge that Augustine was their teacher. Augustine, though, before God saved him, lived a life absolutely intoxicated on the lusts and pleasures of this world. He was enslaved to his passions. He followed his lusts for 30 years of his life. And he wrote a book, it's probably one of the most famous books that has been around in Christianity, called The Confessions. The Confessions, all of it is a prayer to God. Every single word, 350 pages. In that book... Augustine said, quote, as I grew to manhood, I was inflamed with the desires for an abundance of hell's pleasures. By his own testimony, he's like, I couldn't get enough of the passions of the world. He lived for this world. He loved this world and he knew it. At the age of 16, he left his hometown and he headed for Carthage in the current country of Tunisia. His mother was a woman named Monica. Maybe you've heard of Monica. She demonstrates the wonderful power of a praying mother, a wonderful example for all of you women. She prayed for her son all of these years, even as a rebel, as a pagan, as a worldling, until God converted him at the age of 32. So a couple of years before God converted him, he had moved from Carthage to the city of Milan in Italy. And while he was in Milan, he came under the influence of a man named Ambrose. Well, Ambrose was a gospel preacher. 
You think, well, why did Augustine end up at a church where Ambrose was preaching? Here's why. Because Augustine was intrigued by the literary beauty of this preacher. He was intrigued by the, by, the, by the Greek and the outlining and the structure and all the finesse of this wonderful preacher, this gospel preacher. And it took 32 years of the rebellious worldly life of this man, Augustine, but God in his mercy saved him. And the account of his conversion is just an amazing, wonderful story to read. If you're not saved here today, Will it take you that long to come to Christ? And maybe, maybe for, for, for you, it's not bondage to lust, bondage to sexual immorality, but maybe it's the sin of man-pleasing. Maybe it's the sin of greed. Maybe it's the sin of control. Maybe it's the sin of, of self-righteousness. Maybe it's the sin of self-trust. Maybe it's the sin of materialism. Whatever it is, you, if you're here today as a non-believer, are in bondage to that sin. Listen, if that's you, listen to what Augustine said in his confessions. Quote, You, speaking to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. And then Augustine prayed later on, my heart, Lord, does not rest until it rests in you. Can you say that today? Can you say that today, that my heart rests in the Lord, that there is no rest for my soul, there is no security for my soul, there is no salvation for my soul apart from Jesus Christ? Is that your confession? Have you rested in Christ? Hebrews chapter 4 is a glorious chapter on that very topic of rest. It's the theological topic of of entering and enjoying and anticipating the, the ultimate joy in God and the accomplishment of God for his own people. Now, let me just remind you where we were last week in chapter four, verses one to six, we talked about the urgency of entering that rest. Don't delay. Today, you need to make sure that you've entered this rest. Today, we will see that, more of that urgency, but today is more of the reality, more, more of the certainty of entering that rest. Next week, I think you all know Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That is the authority for entering the rest. And then the final few verses about our great high priest is the glory of God himself as we enter the rest. The book of Hebrews is an amazing book. It was actually originally a sermon that was preached. So I'm preaching, as we study the book, a sermon that was preached 2,000 years ago to the early church. If Hebrews chapter 1 told us, look at Jesus because he is God. Hebrews 2 told us, look at Jesus because he's a real man. And this real man has made a full atonement for your sin. And then Hebrews 3 told us, look back. Look back at Israel and reflect on how they failed to enter rest because of their unbelief and because of their disobedience. But now in chapter 4, it's almost like the author is saying, look into your own heart Look into your own heart because you got to diligently make sure that you have entered this rest. Don't come short. Today, right now, at this moment, take action and be sure that you have entered the saving rest of Christ. The Sabbath rest 
is one of the themes of our section today. Look at verse 9. I want you to see it here in your own copy of God's Word. Hebrews 4, verse 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It's too detailed and too technical now, but the whole structure of our paragraph today is all like arrows pointing to verse 9. Verse 9 is like the mountain peak of our whole paragraph today. There is a Sabbath rest for us. That's what the author wants you to know. There is a Sabbath rest. Now, you and I might ask the question, what's that? What does that mean? What do you mean a Sabbath rest? So, as the author provides truth and teaching about the Sabbath rest, what I want to do is I want to help you understand this. It's a complex argument, no doubt. It's a theological, masterful argument, no doubt. It is a biblical theological argument from Genesis all the way to Revelation, this whole idea of rest. It's complex. There's a lot here. I want to make it as simple and understandable as I can. And to do this, I'm going to pose for the sermon outline some diagnostic questions. Who, what, where, when, why? And as we ask these questions, each of the verses is going to help us understand what the Sabbath rest is and how we are to live. So we're going to ask some diagnostic questions. Boys and girls, if you have a pen and paper with your Bible there, you can even jot down these notes as well, because all my points are quite simple. Who, what, where, when, why? Although a little different order than that, but who, what, where, when, why? Let's begin in verse 7 with the first diagnostic question, and that's the question of when? When? I mean, when we understand rest, we have to ask the question, when? Well, well, when should I enter this rest? When should I take action? That's kind of the idea. Look at verse 7. Hebrews 4, verse 7. He again fixes a certain day today, saying through David after so long a time, as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Imagine with me if a travel agency said, today only, for $500, you can go to Hawaii for a week, flight included, hotel included, food included, activities included, all the tips included, but you have to act today. It's only an offer for today. Now, if you don't believe that offer, you're not going to take action. But if your neighbor does believe the offer, and it is actually a legitimate offer, guess what? He's going to Hawaii and you're not. Because the opportunity is today. Today only, today only, you have to take action. That's the idea of verse 7. Verse 7 has that kind of an urgency to it. Look at verse 7 and notice the words. Verse 7, there is a certain day. And then he clarifies in verse 7, it's the day today, like the present time, like right now. And then he says, after so long a time, and then in verse 7, he's going to quote Psalm 95 again, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. I mean, you need to take action today. When? When? Should we enter this rest? When should we be concerned? When should we take action? The author's answer, today. It's like Luke 19, verse 5, when Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today I must stay at your house. It's like 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, when Paul said, Now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. If you look at verse 6, the text says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter into it, Meaning, but those of old failed to enter because of disobedience and unbelief. Verse 6, they they didn't enter because of their disobedience. Verse 7, so God again fixes a certain day today. What does that mean? 
Now is the present time of opportunity. When should you take action? When should you get right with God? When should you take action to believe upon him? Answer, today. Today. He quotes Psalm 95 Verses seven and eight, as I swore, uh, uh, verse seven, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. What is Hebrews three and four brought out over and over and over and over from Psalm 95? Today, take action. Don't wait. You need to get right with God now. Don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Don't be a hearer of the word, but then go to hell as a hearer of the word. Don't put it off. Don't procrastinate. Don't think the door of opportunity will always be open. Boys and girls, children, you have had the privilege of having godly parents and godly dads and moms and godly grandparents and a godly church family. This privilege is yours not just to hear, but to take action and believe. When? What's the first question? When? Answer from verse 7, today. Today. Don't put it off. Let's ask another diagnostic question. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Number two, it's the word who. Who? Well, who, who do I have to rest in? Who do I have to believe in? Where is my hope found? If number one was when, it's today. Number two is who. Look at verse eight. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? It's almost like the author is wrapping his arms around the Old Testament here. Moses commissioned a man named Joshua. And the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 10, when you cross the Jordan River and you live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, he will give you rest from all of your enemies. You will live in security. Ha, praise the Lord for that. And God did it. Joshua 23 and 24 makes that clear. But we pick up as the Old Testament In the larger picture shows us the people of Israel who left Egypt and they traveled through the Red Sea on dry land. And then they trekked through the wilderness for 40 years. And then in the book of Joshua, they finally crossed the Jordan River and, and entered Canaan. They entered the promised land, all that God had given to them. That was a good and a very real kind of rest. But in verse 8, there's a man named Joshua. I don't usually do this, but let me give you the Hebrew. It's Yehoshua. Some of you read Greek, and you have your Greek app or your Greek translation. It's the word Iesus. Another word for that is Jesus. What's the point of verse 8? If this leader, Joshua, had given his people the fullness of rest, there would be no need for another rest to come after that. But the author is doing a word play. Because there's another one who would come by the name of Joshua. He's a greater Joshua. He's a more lasting Joshua. He's a more eternal Joshua. He also has the name Yehoshua. Some of you know his Hebrew name, Yeshua. In Greek, Iesus. He's the God-man. The God-man who would lead his people through a wilderness, as it were, across the Jordan and into the heavenly Canaan. He's the greater Joshua. Interestingly, the English translations try to figure out what to do on this. The King James translation translates verse 8, if Jesus had given them rest. The NIV, the ESV, the NASB, Legacy, they all have if Joshua had given them rest. Listen to the Aramaic translation of the New Testament. If Yeshua 
Yeshua had given them rest. What's the point of this? It's a word play. Israel of old longed for the physical land, and that was good. It was real. It was legit. It was appropriate. But it wasn't the ultimate thing. It was real. It was, it was, it was amazing. It was a good gift from God to his people. But it wasn't the ultimate thing. It's kind of like this. It's like when you go to the restaurant and you order sliders, okay? You order sliders. Now, those little burger things are good and they're real, but it's not the full thing. I don't want a slider that I can eat in a couple of bites. I want the full thing. The rest that Israel had in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, it was good, it was real, it was legitimate, but it wasn't the full thing. It wasn't the real thing in the fullest sense. There was a greater rest that would come. Think of it like this. There was a man named David. He was the king. He was a great king. But he wasn't the perfect king. He wasn't the righteous king. He wasn't the ideal king. He wasn't the king over all the nations. He wasn't the king who brings order to the earth. That is another son of David who will come in the future. A greater David. You get the point. Verse 8. There was a Joshua of old who did not and he could not lead the people of Israel to the fullness of rest. But there is a greater Joshua. Are you tracking with me? There is a greater Joshua. There is a more wonderful Joshua who did lead his people and he can lead his people to the fullness of rest. We're not stuck in the Old Testament looking for a plot of land only. We are, we are, as it were, God's people through faith in Christ and we are gazing on the person of Christ. He is our rest. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, If you come to him, you will find rest for your souls. In Revelation 6, verse 11, Those who are given white robes in glory have rested from all of their works. Christ, the Lamb, satisfies his people in Revelation 7 with rest and glory in heaven as he spreads his tabernacle over his people. This is our ultimate rest in Christ. This is why the hymn writer George Matheson began that wonderful hymn, O Love that will not let me go. I rest, I rest my weary soul in thee. Who? Who do we find rest in? It's not the Old Testament character of Joshua. He was good, he was a good leader, and he gave his people a kind of rest, but there is a greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus. So we've asked the first question, when, when should we know and enter this rest? Answer, right now, today. The second diagnostic question is, well, who, who is it who gives me the rest? Who is it that I must trust in? Who? Answer, Jesus, the greater Joshua. Well, if you're taking notes then, write down the third diagnostic question, and that's the question, what? What is it? And that's verse 9. And, and if, if, if we were looking at our Greek Bibles and we were doing all the technical work of the word plays and the structure, this is the high point of the whole paragraph. It's like all leading to verse 9. Look at it with me. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The NASB has so. If you have the ESV, you have so then. Another English translation has consequently or therefore. 
And that's right. It's a logical inference. It's almost like the author is saying, let me tell you what this all means. Let me tell you just how great the rest is. Let me tell you what it means. Verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest. NIV, ESV, NASV have Sabbath rest. The King James Version has the word simply rest. The New Living Translation has a special rest still waiting. That's good. That's a good rendering. Another English translation has a full and complete Sabbath rest. I like that. There remains a full and a complete Sabbath rest for the people of God. Look carefully at that verb in verse 9 in your Bible. There remains. It means it's coming. It means it's still ahead. It means you and I right here today, we're awaiting this. We are waiting for it. Christian, child of God, there is a dimension of this rest that is future. It is future. It is still to come. We find true rest and safety and comfort and joy in the Lord Jesus when we believe in him savingly for salvation. And we enjoy that rest right now. We really do. We enjoy it. It, It's true. It's right. It's appropriate. We enjoy it right now as a present reality. But there's also a future hope that awaits us. There is a future hope. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You know what that means? You enjoy it now, but there's much more to come. Listen to Revelation 6 in the context of the tribulation judgments. Those in heaven rest until all the fullness of God's people are brought in. Revelation 14.11 tells us that the unbelievers in hell, as they are tormented day and night, they have no rest day or night. Revelation 14, verse 13, tells us, Blessed are those who die in the Lord, for they rest from all of their labors. I think this is what Hebrews 4, verse 9 is talking about. There remains, we have our hope set on a future rest, a Sabbath rest. We who believe, we rejoice in God's accomplishment in Christ. And we await the heavenly Sabbath, the rest where we will finally, eternally, unendingly swim in the ocean of joy in God's glory. Salvation is not just, man, I'm looking forward to going to heaven and then I'll enjoy all of it then. No, you get to enjoy it now. Oh, you rest your weary soul in this God. You rest your soul in the hands of a good God who began a good work in you, and he will perfect it. But there remains for you a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What is this future heavenly Sabbath rest all about? Well, it is a rest from all sin and from all temptation. Whatever struggle whatever temptation, whatever hardship, whatever battle you currently face as you pray the words our Savior taught, lead us not into temptation. One day when that Sabbath rest dawns and we are with the Lord in glory, there will be a rest from all sin and a rest from all temptation and there will be a rest from all battles, all spiritual warfare, and all discernment from false doctrines. There will be a rest from all wearisome labor and all effort. There will be a rest in heaven fully focused on and eternally satisfied and absolutely fixated on the person of Christ. Can you imagine this Sabbath rest? Ponder with me, Christian. Beholding the Father's love. Ponder with me in heaven, 
seeing the sun's beauty. Ponder with me in heaven, enjoying the Spirit's fellowship forever. You don't have to go home after a worship service like we do here. You don't have to battle temptation and struggle and worry anymore. It's the fullness of joy that forever will be increasing in the glory of God when we are with him. Verse 9, there is still remaining a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What is it? It is a Sabbath rest that is remaining right now for you, child of God, reserved and kept for you in heaven. One more diagnostic question. And then, by the way, I have a lot of applications, so that's why it's going kind of quick here. We've asked the first diagnostic question, well, when? When should I take action? When is it important? Answer from verse 7 today. The second question we asked is the word who. Well, who do we believe in? Who is it? Who is our hope? Answer, Jesus, the greater Joshua who came. What's the third question that we saw? What? What is this Sabbath rest? It is the fullness of heaven's enjoyment of God. Let me give you a fourth. Let's ask a fourth diagnostic question. And it's the question, why? Why? Why is this important? Why is all of this important? Look at verse 10 and notice how verse 10 in your Bible begins with the word for. It's the author saying, let me give you an important argument. Verse 10, for the one who has entered God's rest has himself also rested from his own works just as God did from his. What's that? Well, it's important because to enter God's very own rest means that you, Christian, rest from your own works like God did. Remember Genesis 1? We're studying it in the 2 o'clock family Bible hour when God creates each day of the six days of creation. After God creates, we see in, in, in the seventh day, Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3, that God rested from all of the works that he had done. He rested. Why? Rest follows work. What's the point of the rest of God? I, this is the point last week in the sermon. God accomplished his work, and it is the joyful, sovereign, kingly Gladness that God has in his own accomplishment. When God rested, it's not like, whew, I have to wipe the sweat away. He, he wasn't tired. God wasn't weary when he created. So why rest? What's the point of that? He was joyfully content in his own kingly accomplishment. He was overjoyed. In his sovereign work. That's what rest is. When you enter the rest of God, it is a happy contentment, a satisfied achievement that God has done for you. Or as I defined it last week, when you enter God's rest, it is a joyous contentment in God's very own achievement. When you enter rest, it's not like you just sit back and fold your arms and say, well, I'm resting. That's not the point. It's not a physical posture. Resting in God is a spiritual, joyful contentment in God and his perfect atoning work on the cross in Christ. That's why the text says in verse 10, we who have entered God's rest, we have rested from our own works. What does that mean? You're not trying to get to God by your own effort anymore because you're satisfied in Christ. Well, how do you get this? 
I mean, how how does this salvation come to you? Verse 3 told us. Verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. So last week I gave three items that are included in this definition of saving faith. Remember that? The first is a firm persuasion. You have to be persuaded in your mind that this is true. After the firm persuasion, second, there has to be a full surrender. A full surrender. Take up your cross daily and follow me, Luke 9, 23. Yes, it is about what you know. You have to know the truth, but you also need to fully surrender to Christ as the Lord of your life. You can't be a Christian and have the driver's seat of your life and Jesus in the trunk. Third, if we have saving faith, it is a firm persuasion and it is a full surrender, but it's also a heartfelt clinging. I love the Savior. He, he gave himself for me. He loved me. He, he died for me. Look at all that he did for me. How could I not love him supremely? This is how one enters that rest. And that's verse 10. We who have entered the rest by faith, we have rested from our own works. I don't trust in my own merit any longer because I am joyfully content in God's achievement in Christ. The question for you today, is this you? Have you entered this rest? Have you entered this rest? Do do you believe in Christ? Have you rested from all of your works? I was telling someone this week in evangelism, I said, if you put your faith in Jesus, it's not enough to just know about Jesus. You have to turn your back on all the good things that you have done before and say, I reject all of those. Paul in Philippians 3 called it rubbish. All the good that I have done, I I count but rubbish. Entering this rest only comes through faith. Why? Here's the diagnostic question. Why is it important? Why is it this key? Because if you enter God's rest, you have rested from your own works as God did. You're not trying to get to God by your own efforts. So if you're taking notes... Let me see if I can take all the the theology of rest that I've sort of talked about in these diagnostic questions and give you maybe a, a little conclusion here if you're taking notes. And I just want you to write down four words. There are some parts to this rest theologically that I want you to get. Number one, there is a rest of, number one, salvation. There's a salvation rest. And that's verse 10. If you've entered God's rest, you have rested from your own works. You say, I am not going to heaven by my own good works. I can't. I have none. I have rested as God did. I am joyfully content in his achievement in Christ. You cease from all works to earn your own salvation and your own merits with God. For by grace. Are you saved through faith? And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. We understand that Christ satisfied the requirements of the law. We know that Christ became our substitutionary sacrifice to die for our sin. We know that Christ propitiated God's wrath by absorbing and quenching it on the cross. We know that Christ is the only way to God. We don't have any confidence in our own works, but in him. That's 
the rest of salvation, number one. But jot this word down in your notes. Number two, there's a rest of sanctification as well. There's a rest of sanctification. And that's verse three. We who have believed have entered into that rest. I mean, Christian, right now, at this very moment, you are joyfully content in Jesus. Philippians 4, it's a peace that surpasses all comprehension. It is a peace that God gives. It is a rest that God gives. And you grow from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory as you progressively grow in your Christian life. That's progressive sanctification. That's what Hebrews 3 verse 1 said, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, focus on Jesus, rest in Jesus, trust in Jesus, have all of your joy in your Christian life, in Jesus. There is a rest of sanctification right now, Christian, that you enjoy. I hope you know something of that. I hope that you have the joy of the Lord in your heart. I hope that you can say with Christ as he prays for you and John chapter 17, that his joy would be made full in you. John 15 echoes that as well. It is a rest of sanctification right now as a Christian. I enjoy this season of rest as a child of God. Fully glad, fully content in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He is my only hope of going to heaven. That is the rest of sanctification as well. Third, write this word down if you're taking notes. There is the rest of glorification. A rest of glorification. And that's verse 9. There remains a Sabbath Rest. Do you know what heaven is? It is a place of infinite joy in God. Far from being bored, it is a place of always learning as we behold more of God in his character. Imagine the boundless joy in God that we have, the bankless joy in God that we will have, the shoreless joy in God that we will have, the bottomless joy in God that we will have, and how, and how we ought to re- reflect on the endless joy and the relentless joy and the tireless joy. We will never get tired of being full of joy in God in heaven. That's the Sabbath rest that awaits us. That's the rest of glorification. But there's one more. And I want to dwell on this for a few minutes with you. Jot this down. Number four, there's a rest of anticipation. It's why it's called a Sabbath rest. Literally in the Greek, in Hebrews 4 verse 9, there remains a Sabbath. A Sabbath. That's every week. That's what we do. We we meet together to anticipate, encourage, remind one another, and refocus our hearts on heaven. I mean, you you could call it the Sabbath day. You could call it the, 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 the Lord's day. You could call it the Christian Sabbath. You could call it the New Testament Sabbath. You can call it the Lord's day. Whatever term you prefer for the day of worship that we gather and we meet on on the first day of the week, like 1 Corinthians 16 tells us to do, we meet corporately. We meet together. We meet as God's people. Guess what? It's a Sabbath rest. It's a dress rehearsal for heaven. When we meet on Sunday, it is a preparation for the ultimate Sabbath rest that we'll enjoy. It's kind of like practice for heaven. That's why, church family, the Lord's Day worship is so important. Lord's Day worship is so important It's like our family. We go to the grocery store once a week. If we didn't have that once a week, guess what? We'd have some pretty bare shelves and we have a lot of hungry tummies. 
and we, we would be in need. And yet, and yet, Lord's Day worship is the feeding of the soul. Lord's Day worship is a grace gift from God to us. It is a means of grace to strengthen you, to refocus you, to embolden you, to fortify you. That's why one of the most important and one of the most profound tools that you can have with unbelievers is, I'm going to prioritize the gathering with God's people. So often we have our life and we sort of fit all the things in our life. You know, we got our sports and our work and our family and all these things. And kind of church is one of those. Whereas the book of Philippians teaches in Ephesians that church ought to be the center of the life for the Christian. And we fit everything else in line with the body of Christ. You know, gathering with the church on the Lord's Day is not... Oh, I have to go to church today. Gathering, gathering with God's people is like, hallelujah. I, I get to gather with God's people. I can't wait to gather with God's people. I'm eager to gather with God's people. It's like every Lord's Day is like one of those little alerts on your phone. You get those? You know, if I have something in my calendar for like two hours from now, I have all these little alerts like 10 minutes ahead of time reminding me, you know, something is coming. Lord's Day worship is like an alert on your phone, as it were. The heavenly rest is coming. The Sabbath rest is coming. It remains for you. But when we gather right here on earth together, it is, as it were, a dress rehearsal. It is a practice as we focus on Christ, as we behold our God, as we delight in his gospel. That's why we sing of Christ. That's why we read the word of Christ. That's why we pray to Christ. It's why we preach Christ. We long to behold him. It's like, it's like a couple that's getting married. A couple that's getting married, they know that that wedding day is fast approaching. And they're looking forward to that wedding day fast approaching. But before that, there is that wedding rehearsal. There's that practice, there's that learning, there's that understanding, there's that walking. you got to know where to stand. And, and it's almost like a, a rehearsal for the real final thing. When we meet together, it's like the rehearsal for that day when we behold our God face to face. So, church family, I'm speaking to the choir here, but... What are the implications of all of that? Be there where you are. You're here. Be there for corporate worship. Number two, be prepared. Be prepared for worship. Number three, when we gather together, I think one of the most profound ways that we can demonstrate love to one another is to be heaven-oriented when we gather together. I mean, the early church was, they said, Maranatha, our Lord, come. Number four, another way that we can apply this, be others-oriented as well. Not, not self-oriented, not what can I get out of it, but who can I serve today? Who can I greet today? Who can I encourage today? Who can I pray with today? How can I minister a gift of encouragement and ministry to someone in the church family? Another way we can apply this is to be spiritual, and I don't mean by that some haughty thing, but rather than earthly or earthy or temporal or worldly. These things aren't bad, but when we're gathered with like-minded heavenly citizens, why not talk about our Lord and his word and the Sabbath rest that awaits us? Now you have your Bible open, Hebrews 4. Look at the last verse, verse 11. And notice how it begins. Verse 11 is the word, therefore, after all that has been said, therefore, verse 11, let us be diligent. I love how the author is such a pastor. 
Let us be diligent. Keep reading to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. What does that mean? Let's earnestly strive together as a family of believers to live in that rest. To have that joyful contentment in God's achievement. Let's remind each other. Let's encourage each other. Let's talk about this with one another. Let's enjoy communion with God. As we obey his will and his word together. So we've seen some diagnostic questions. What is the paragraph all about in Hebrews chapter 4? Well, when, when, today is the answer to that. Number two, who? The greater Joshua, Jesus. Number three, we ask the question, what? What is it? It's the Sabbath rest. And number four, why? So that you rest from all works for your own salvation. John Newton. John Newton was a pastor in Olney. He said this. On a Lord's Day Sunday gathering with his church, John Newton said, Let us now seek a blessing as we wait in the courts of God today. He said to his church congregation, This is the best day of all of the week because this day of the Lord's worship is our emblem of our Sabbath rest to come. It's our emblem. It's our emblem of our Sabbath rest to come. Church family, we love the presence of God. Church family, we remember the cross of Christ. Church family, we reaffirm our trust in the gospel of grace. We rest from this world and we recommit ourselves to a joyful confidence in God. And we look forward to and we anticipate our heavenly communion with Christ. And one of the great ways we can do that together is as we take the Lord's Supper together as a church family. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we acknowledge that there is so, so much, so much theology, so much doctrine, so much application that is here in this wonderful chapter in Hebrews 4. And yet, O Lord, we recognize that there is the theme of rest. Thank you that in Christ we have entered this rest, ceasing from our own works, rejoicing in the accomplishment of Christ for us on the cross. Help us to grow as we rest in our Savior, longing for the heavenly Sabbath rest that is to come. Help us to commune with you even in the moments of the Lord's Supper here with one another that we would do this with cheerful hearts, that we would do this with expectant hearts, that we would do this with obedient hearts, that we would do this with Christ-oriented hearts. Help us, O Lord, to focus on you and not ourselves and not the things of this world, but to focus on you. In Jesus' name and for his glory.